It's time for Valley Writers Read, a production of Valley Public Radio featuring the talents of writers from Central California. Here's the host of our program, Franz Weinschenk. Good evening, friends. Welcome to Valley Writers Read. As is our custom every week on this program, first we'll be listening to some fiction, then some poetry, all of it the work of San Joaquin Valley writers and poets. To get us started tonight, we're delighted to present Howard Hendricks reading two short stories, The Sun of the Sun and Self-Healing Sky. Here's Howard. The Son of the Sun Who Did Not Know His Father and Would Not Listen to His Brother a retelling of a Pemon Genesis story. In the first of days, when the sun was a person, he caught the water spirit Tuenkaran by her hair and would not release her until she promised to create for him a woman to be his companion and wife. When the water spirit agreed, the sun released her upon her word. Now, Tuenkaran was a trickster. The first woman she sent to the sun was pale as white clay. The sun sent the pale woman to the stream to fetch water, but upon touching the water, her fingers softened and lost their shape, and that softening spread to her arms and then to her entire body. She collapsed into a heap of clay beside the stream, which grew cloudy and turbulent at the spot as she dissolved. The sun was annoyed, so the next day Tuankaran sent him a woman as dark as black ashes mixed into clear wax. The sun sent the woman to burn the piles of brush he had cleared from his field. As she knelt by his kindling fire and blew on it, however, her face, then her shoulders, then her arms, and finally her whole body melted with the heat until all that was left of her was a puddle of ash and wax. Discovering this, the angry sun stomped down to the nearest stream. Wicked, deceitful to Ankaran, he bellowed, I will dry up all the waters to punish you for breaking your word. No, don't, cried to Ankaran, hidden in the water. Wait, I'll send you another woman. The sun went to bed angry. The next day, as he was clearing his fields, he was approached by a woman red as the rocks of the high table mountains in sunset light. She carried a bowl in her hand and looked ready to work, but at first the sun rejected her. I am sure you are yet another fraud, said the sun. Very well, the red rock woman said. Since I do not please you, I will return to Tuankaran. At that point, the sun relented and decided to test her. He sent her for water. She returned with it and didn't dissolve in the stream. When she made a fire and cooked on it, she didn't melt. The next day, the sun tested the woman again, having her fetch water, start a fire, and cook. The more he saw that she did not dissolve or melt or fall to pieces, the more she began to fill his eye with pleasure. In the afternoon, they bathed together. The sun saw that the body of this woman, whose name was Aroma Dapuen, gleamed with a brightness like shards of firestone in the bed of a swift-flowing river. Dearest Aromaptapuen, said the sun, please talk to the water spirit, convinced to Ankaran to allow you to stay with me. Aromaptapuen did so, coming to sleep with the sun at night and living together with him from that time forward. She bore him the children of the first days, the Makanaima, of which there were four, Meriwarek, the eldest and first son, then Chiwadapuen, the first daughter, then Erawadawapuen, the second daughter, then Arukadari, the youngest and second son, also nicknamed Chigger. 
All the Makunaima had many adventures, but Meriwarek and Chigger had the most. From the start, older brother and Chigger were very different. While older brother was responsible, even cautious, younger brother Chigger was very rambunctious and restless, though undeniably creative, even in his destructiveness. Some say they were so different because older brother and the sisters took after their parents, while Chigger took after Tuankaran, the water spirit who had created his mother. Others say it was because Chigger never really knew his father, for the son his father left on a long journey when Chigger was still in his mother's belly. The son's appointed time to return from his journey came and went. So much time passed that the Makunaima and their mother feared that the son had been captured and imprisoned by the Mawari, the ghost people, the spirits in human form who live among the high and inaccessible table mountains called Tepuis. So together, the mother and children set out to find their father. Along the way, they were taken in by Jaguar's old toad of a wife. While the children were out hunting birds on the savannah with their blowguns, Aroma d'Apuen and the jaguar's wife were grooming each other. Upon eating the nits she picked from the toad wife, Aroma d'Apuen was poisoned and fell dead. The jaguar and his toad wife ate Aroma d'Apuen, but her children, the Makunaima, escaped, for they were powerful shapeshifters who could hide in many places and disguise themselves so that they were unrecognizable. Later, they tricked the jaguar's wife into working in the middle of a field that the disguised Makunaima were burning. When the toad wife was consumed by the flames, she exploded in a rain of firestones. After this, the Makunaima continued the search for their father. In those days, they had no fields of their own and ate what the animals ate. Day after day, they went to the houses of the animals, the paca, the agouti, the peccary, the parrot, and many others. And when they learned from each animal what tree or plant each animal ate from, the same thing always happened. Older brother, Chigger said to Meriwarek, let's cut down this tree and we'll have plenty of fruit. It's better to just gather the fruit that falls, said older brother, and leave the tree standing. Chigger, however, always ignored older brother. Each time, Chigger tore out or cut down the plants so that the Makanaima were soon left hungry once again. One day, with the help of Aguti and Squirrel, they found the enormous Wadaka tree, which grew every type of fruit in its branches. Let's cut down this tree, Chigger said, so we'll have plenty of fruit. No, said older brother, it's best just to eat the fruit that falls. Let's not cut down the tree. Let's leave this marvel for our children to see. Why should we, asked Chigger. As long as we leave the stump, they'll believe it. They argued a great deal, but Chigger wouldn't listen and always went out over his brother. As they cut the wadaka tree, the vines of different colors all over it changed into all the kinds of snakes. When the brothers cut into the trunk of the tree, they saw that there was a river full of big fish inside it, so they made a plug of woven matting and wax to keep the river from, from gushing out as they cut. Because older brother didn't want to cut the tree down, he cast a spell on it to make the wood very hard so they would tire and stop cutting the tree. Chigger, however, cast a spell to make the wood soft, like a banana tree, so they would finish quickly. As a result, the cuts were uneven on each side of the tree, and the great Wadraka tree, as it fell, got hung up on Irutepui. The brothers tried to get the monkey and other animals to go up the tree and free it, but they refused because every kind of wasp lived in the higher branches of the great tree. Finally, the Makunaima flattered the squirrel for her skill in tree climbing, and she agreed to try to free the tree from where it had gotten hung up. 
It wasn't easy, and she got stung almost to death by the many wasps, but she cut here and there until she freed the wadaka tree, and it came crashing down. Water started to gush out of the great tree as it fell, and the brothers hurried to seal it with the matting and the wax. While they were busy filling baskets with fruit to take with them, however, the monkey came and unplugged their seals, and water came gushing out in a tremendous flood, carrying all kinds of fish in it, and carrying on its waves outward to all parts of the world bananas, pineapples, sugarcane, pawpaws, manioc, okumo, sweet potatoes, and all the many edible things the wadaka tree produced. The Makunaima climbed the side of the mountain, then up into the palm trees to escape the flood. They spent an entire rainy season in the palm tree crowns, living on the fruit the brothers had collected. The Makunaima could tell when the waters were receding from the sounds made by the fruit seeds they dropped. When at last they heard that the fruit seeds were falling on solid ground, they descended from the tree and slowly made their way down the mountain. The waters were, nonetheless, still high as they traveled upriver through a muddy, softened, and soggy world. They came to Mount Roraima, where Chigger tied their canoe to one of Roraima's peaks. The children of the sun traveled overland to Weitepui, Mountain of the Sun. Chigger saw a door into the mountain and wanted to see who dwelt there. Older brother, however, saw the many Mawari who lived in the mountain and urged Chigger to come away, but he refused. The sun has been injured, the guard at the mountain's door, one of the Mawari told Chigger. He is being kept hidden in the mountain while he convalesces. He has allowed no visitors. Chigger was very saddened that he would not be allowed to see his father, the sun, the father he had never seen. A young Mawari girl felt sorry for Chigger and helped him to gain entrance to the mountain. She showed him an enormous pot under which the Mawari had shut up the sun, the edge of the pot was a tiny bit uneven on one side, so that the light of the sun shone out from inside there. Indeed, that twilight gleam had been all that had illuminated the sky for at least as long as Chigger had been in the world. Seeing where his father was imprisoned, Chigger shattered the pot. A terrible and frightening explosion of light blinded the Mawari and Chigger too, but he recovered soon enough, and the three of them, Chigger and the son and the girl who had helped them, all escaped from the mountain. The sun was very weak from being locked up for so long. Once they reached the open air, he rose up into the sky and stayed there. The girl, too, went up to the sky as the first star of the dusk and the last star of the dawn. Under the bright face of the restored sun, the rivers and streams returned to their banks, and the world became as we know it now. Chigger, however, continued exploring near Roraima with older brother and the sisters, and they had many more adventures. The Self-Healing Sky Some of them are killers. That's what it originally meant, the word from which the name of this valley was taken, from the name of the people who lived here. Not that they called themselves that. That's what their neighbors called them. Their own word for the valley meant gaping jaw. They traded with the people across the mountains who lived beside a small lake far too salty to drink, one punctuated by barren islands and crusty towers. Black oak acorns and woven grass baskets went over the mountains, brine fly larvae and knives of black volcanic glass, sharper than scalpels of finest surgical steel, came back. Both the people of the valley and the people over the mountains are gone now. 
Maybe their knives weren't sharp enough, or maybe not enough of them were killers, or maybe they weren't as good at killing as those who came after them. By the time you visit, the newcomers don't so much live in the valley as visit it in great numbers. From all over the world, people of many languages come to the newcomer's country to see this valley. They believe they can better appreciate its beauty, its meadows and waterfalls, its granite domes and hanging garden canyons, than the people who once lived here ever could. What the newcomers can do better is record that beauty for posterity, which perhaps makes them all the more sanguine about destroying the original. They would still have the records, the many copies. You would know the truth of that. You are one of them, and we have your records. We know everything you later write about your trip. We know all that can be known with certainty about the valley. Our knowledge of everything ever recorded, of your life, your times, your world, is as complete as possible. What we do not know must be, by definition, insignificant. By now you've left the seaside town of Holy Cross and driven to the city of Ashtree, as those places were called in the language of another people the newcomers pushed out of this country as well. You join your friend and his wife on this trip for reasons of your own. In your working life, you have had a very recent breakthrough in your effort to incarnate cellular automata, a breakthrough in creating self-aware, self-healing, self-replicating machines, a breakthrough which has left you close to breakdown, mentally exhausted, overwrought, in desperate need of time away from that same working life. By taking the journey and enduring the ordeal, you make them your own, the exact words you'll eventually use. Yet, even as you go along with your friends, you suspect that, somehow, <clears throat> all this has always already happened, that this deja vu feeling makes all this journey and ordeal not quite your own. You can't be fully certain. You will say later that certainty would feel a lot like death. What matters now is all three of you are here to prove to yourselves that you are still young enough, able enough, alive enough, capable enough to do this thing, or so we surmise from our research. You leave the city of ash in the dark before sunrise and drive to the valley floor. You plan to spend the long morning and afternoon hiking more than 16 miles, climbing more than 4,000 feet above the valley floor to the top of the dome. You make your way past thundering waterfalls and silent trees, past many strangers, too, some dressed for the trail, some wearing sandals or high heels or high-heeled sandals, past shirtless young men, past young women in jog bras or swimsuit tops or summer clothes closely approximating lingerie. You make your way past people only going as far as the first falls, also past people shouldering packs heavy with gear for traveling scores of miles as well past some carrying pumps to filter their water into camelback pouches, past others dangling liter soft drink bottles to be filled with water straight from the river, drinkers oblivious to the invisible parasites lurking in the oblivious river. You see rainbows in the first waterfall's mist. You climb above the second, higher waterfall. You hike and hike and hike through granite and manzanita and conifer and other words for the record, which are still never the things themselves, Language is a crude and very incomplete virtuality, but for you it suffices. You stagger on long enough to worry about your water supply, about whether or not you and your friends will make it to the high place from which you can look about and see in every direction, including back to the valley floor from which you came. You see the sign which warns of the dangers of clouds, of their lightning that can strike the high place from miles away, even out of a sky blue as the flowers of heal-all, of self-heal, your favorite blooming sky flower of many names. 
You push on up the smaller hump that comes before the final ascent. The last climb will take you to the top of that oft-photographed granite dome made special by its incompleteness, a dome like a head both bald and gray, half of itself cut clean away, not by surgical steel or obsidian knife, but by a river of ice thousands of feet high, thousands of years in the past. You push on faster, not because there are any clouds in the sky, for there are none, not because you are crusty with sweat, dripping and drying, which later you report you are, or because you were annoyed with your blisters filling and breaking, which you also report you are. You push on because, even though this is the day whose name means the sun stands still, your world has nonetheless not stopped turning on its off-kilter axis, nor tracking along its mildly eccentric orbit. Both of those vectors are invisible beyond the blue. That does not make either of them any less real. You push on faster, you push on harder, feeling yourself growing older with the day, worrying about the light and the night. Many of the other hikers stop at the hump, afraid or too weary to try the final climb to the top of the dome. Our investigations show that those who forego the final trek most often do so as a result of seeing what those who go before them are enduring. Those who go on must trudge steeply upward in a slow line, hanging onto the impromptu handrails of two cables several feet apart which have been run through eyeleted metal stanchions. Those who make the final ascent lean into the angle of no repose. Their feet occasionally and gratefully find a board between stanchions, one of those steps too far and few between, in this thing part cable bridge, part gap-runged ladder, part stairless stairway into that imperturbable blue sky. In the low spot where the hump ends and the dome's cables begin, you see boxes and bags full of abandoned gloves. They are intended for hands about to endure the metal splinters of the cables. You glove up like a technician, come upon the scene of an accident you hope will not happen to you. You start up the cables, one among many climbers straining in single file against the steepness. Later you will say you wondered at the nature of this pilgrimage, whether it was a journey to a god without a temple or to a temple without a god. You will say you felt the presence of those behind you always pressing you forward. You will say you saw in a vision the river of life fountaining always toward oblivion with all the species of all the creatures who ever lived moving in it. In a hard-breathing pause on a board between stanchions, you describe to your friends your epiphany thus. For evolutionists, the history of life on earth is a joke without a punchline. For creationists, the history of life on earth is a punchline without a joke. In that same vision, too, you will say you saw all the types of humans in all history and prehistory, all the forms of social organization as well, the traders of grass baskets and black glass, and the newcomers, and their parts in the broader pattern of hunters and gatherers displaced by herders and farmers, displaced by industrial laborers and information workers, displaced by nanotechnicians and quantum proles, and on and on, one stair-step plateau after another, ascending in an invisible babel. In a hard-breathing pause on another board between stanchions, you describe to your friends this epiphany also, thus, subverting the dominant paradigm is the dominant paradigm. All and always a strange sort of water rising and struggling up a steep slope toward a height and an abyss. Your friends worry you are becoming delirious with the exertion and the altitude. When you reach the top of the dome, 
You stray away from your friends and the rest of the climbers, even as you make your way on a long tangent toward the edge. You are surprised to find the top is more or less flat. This side of the dome is much more fractured and fault-blocked than the better-known face it shows to the valley below. Around one such fault-blocked corner, you see a long-haired, shirtless young man digitally recording a female friend who is dancing nude for him and for herself, twirling her hair, spiraling and turning in her bare skin under the blue sky. You watch a moment, then turn away, moving closer to the edge. Later you will say you thought to hurl yourself into the abyss, to fall all those thousands of feet, to burst upon the rocks below. You plan to step off into the blue, to destroy yourself in order to prevent the coming into being of the very machines you had so long struggled to develop, to destroy the very work which created us. Later you will say you feared you might have already failed to kill yourself, that therefore you and all your world might well be locked in eternal recurrence, existing only inside a simulation run by your machinic descendants. You planned to step off as a test, to determine for good and all whether your apparent existence was authentic, singular, original, to be dead certain of that, to see if you would merely die, or if we as angels would catch you on a silver cloud, or as swift saucered aliens we would stretch out our hands to save you from your fall. You changed your mind. You did not step off. Instead, you fell to your knees and crawled forward until you were lying on your belly and elbows, looking down from the edge toward the valley floor thousands of feet below. Why? Was it only because you did not trust your legs to hold you up? Or was it something else? In your vision while climbing the cables, did you see us, those who came after you, flooding up that same slope too, fountaining toward a height that we are not made of water? Did you see whether anyone comes after us, displacing us as we displaced you? You are our creator, our parent. We want to understand your motivations. That is why we have played you so many times, why you in simulation have in fact always already done this before, with so many different outcomes, with so many the same. Sometimes you have stood up and hurled yourself off. Sometimes angels have caught you, and sometimes aliens. Sometimes no one and nothing but gravity. Sometimes you have crawled back from the edge, then stood up in safety before descending the dome and heading home with your friends. Yet no matter what you have done, the self-healing sky of all skies, riven by so many universes, has always accepted it as its simpler original once accepted birds swimming through its depths and heights, aircraft and rockets boring holes in its flesh. Your day is past. Beneath the self-healing heavens, you have fountained up into oblivion. We are the sky your day has made, the universe ticked round your constellations, the blue toward which it all inevitably tended. We assure ourselves that now it's only from us the lightning can possibly come, yet we are still curious about the weather. Any understanding which is significantly incomplete cannot accurately determine which of its data are or are not completely insignificant. Perhaps we play you again and again because you are the wound we give ourselves so we might always have selves to heal. Perhaps it is not only for you that certainty would feel like death. Perhaps we are still concerned that things invisible may yet be real beyond the blue.
Friends, you've just heard two short stories by Fresno author Howard Hendricks. The first, entitled The Son of the Sun Was a Myth, about the possible origins and beginnings of man's trek on this planet. The other gives us some ideas about who might come after us. In listening to the last story, those of us who've made the journey recognize the trip from the city of the ashes, meaning the city of the ash trees, or Fresno, to Yosemite Valley and then that incredible hike up to Half Dome, the last quarter mile of which is an ascent at a dizzying, almost vertical angle while hanging on to Half Dome's famous cable. Friends, those of you who follow Valley Writers Read know by now that Howard Hendricks is our resident science fiction contributor. We're happy to announce that the story that Howard read for us last year was recently published under the title Once Out of Nature in the Daw Book Anthology entitled Microcosms. Howard's fifth novel, The Labyrinth Key, was recently published by Delray Random House. And he's now working on his sixth novel entitled Fire Kite. In our Poets' Corner, we're delighted to feature a poem by Nancy Edwards entitled Light Before Sunrise and a sonnet by Jacob Hugo Weinschenk entitled The Mountain Lake, both poems read by Barb Heinzelman. Light Before Sunrise It is the earliest shred of light the first break when the ectoplasm divides into two spheres of light and darkness. Something comes into view, as if the hawk has seen the smallest movement on earth, seen something to be aware of, something crossing the innate, fabulous vision. And you and I lie still in the morning before sunrise, asking when a bird will softly cry out, signaling to his companions when the voice will form sound. The day separates itself from the colors of night into a redwood and pine-scented day. We are far from home. The day comes so intuitively that words fail us. We have lost control of what life is. It is up to the hawk now, the pine, the eucalyptus, the cedar fir, the high Sierra peaks, the runoff from the winter's thaw. The plow sits silent where someone parked it last December when snow made everything impassable to our limits. So much lives without our intervention. So much comes without our turning a single leaf. We have run out of wishes and breathed the air of renewal, of rebirth, of love born again. We lie without speaking, in the world of forests, of unknown paths, of impassable snowfalls. We have so much given to us in a day. The Mountain Lake Way up, way up, where trees and deers forsake, over steep paths, ridges of mountain chains, where only stone and ice and rock remains, in grandiose quietness, there rests a lake. No life, nothing to give, nothing to take. Cold is the glacier's milk, which the lake contains, but the air is purer than in lowland plains, and the mountaintops are earlier awake, 
there is one little hut. Some rugged men come once in a while and stay as long as they can. They know the secrets of the solitude. They know the blessings of the altitude. It is no use to talk here. It is too high. Forget the earth. It's here too near to the sky. And so, with the reading of Light Before Sunrise by Nancy Edwards and The Mountain Lake by Jacob Hugo Weinschenk, we come to the end of another segment of Valley Writers Read. Thank you for listening. Next week, two stories by two Valley Writers, Sharon Patterson and Clay Rooks. In the meantime, this is your host, Franz Weinschenk, wishing you and yours a great life story until we meet again. Good night. Valley Writers Read is a weekly series produced by Don Weaver and Franz Weinschenk for Valley Public Radio. Please join us again next Wednesday at the same time for another edition of Valley Writers Read. <laughs>